0: everyone welcome back to yet another episode of new books in south asian studies i am madhuri the host of your channel and today we are talking to benjamin Siegel about his first book hungry nation food famine and the making of modern india so the book uh, just came out from cambridge university press in april am i right Yep, that's it. And so thank you so much, Ben, for joining on new books. We are so excited to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me, Nathan.
0: So before we jump into the serious business of food and famine, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you came to be a historian and more specifically a historian of modern India?
1: No, sure, absolutely. Well, you know, many, uh, many journalists like to say that they were failed academics and, and many academics like to say they were failed, uh, journalists. I was squarely in that second camp. Um, I studied South Asian history and South Asian anthropology, uh, at Yale, um, with Mirdu Rai, who's now, um, at, uh, Presidency College, uh, and with, uh, Barney, uh, the late Barney Bates. Uh, and I went off, um, to work after, um, graduating from college, uh, at the, um, Delhi Bureau of Time Magazine. Uh, and I was there for some time, uh, working on really kind of interesting stories broadly having to do with environmental themes. Uh, did that for a while before heading to Hong Kong, uh, and then back to Delhi again. Um. And, you know, that was a real wonderful moment to go beyond kind of academic questions uh, and to think through things as a journalist. Um, working on stories with the time frame of about mm, two two weeks, three weeks, four weeks at the longest um, was something that I enjoyed for the pace. Um, but they were kind of big structural questions, um, broadly having to do with questions of uh, the environment, with questions of agriculture, with questions of human well-being that felt... um Felt to me like they called for longer, um, longer frames of inquiry. And that was what, uh, induced me or, uh, pushed me towards or drove me, uh, back to my, my graduate work, which I, um, I did at, uh, in the history department at Harvard. Um, I worked with Shida Kavos and um, Sunil Amrit, who was then at Birkbeck, uh, with Emma Rothschild on um, the project that eventually would become, uh, Hungry Nation.
0: Okay, thank you for that, uh, you know, that uh, little sketch. And, you know, it's funny you should uh, say you were a failed journalist because it's true in your book, I noticed uh, a real vivid attention to stories and, you know, these uh, detailed depictions of people and characters and individual dilemmas that actually make the book uh, really enjoyable to read because, I mean, even though you say that you're primarily interested in policymakers and planners and technocrats, uh, the voices of people are very much present uh, in the book. Um, But, you know, before we again go on to the book, I thought I'd ask you, A little specifically about the kinds of challenges you encountered doing archival work on post-independence material. Because, you know, at some point in the introduction, you gripe a little bit about how the materials were often scrappy or scattered. And, you know, it was difficult to always marshal the evidence that you needed
1: yeah I mean this is one of the key challenges um uh that I was facing when I was um beginning my graduate work um I think it'd be unfair to say at that time that um uh that there were few post colonial histories as such of uh, uh, of of south asia but but I think there was a real question i started in in two thousand and eight um and there was a real question as to how we could write good uh gristy histories of post-colonial India and South Asia more broadly, um, given what anyone who's worked in the archives in uh, in South Asia knows, which is to say they are patchy. They are um, uh, particularly frustrating once we get to that first decade after independence. Um, everyone who's worked, say, in the National Archives in Delhi knows that you can put in a request for Ten or twenty files, and you know, if you're lucky, three or four of them might come back, Um, and that's that's just out of the ones which are cataloged and available. And the exciting thing is that in the you know in the ten years since I started that um, that work, a lot of really fantastic scholarship has come out and is just about to come out, which thinks through this question of what how how to make how to create how to craft or. Recollage together, a, uh, a real post-colonial archive for South Asia, um, responding to some of the provocations which were which were um, being put forward in um, really at the at the turn of the at the turn of the millennium. Um, for me, this was um, something of a project of recovery. We certainly have very good um, studies, um, top-down studies of food and agriculture. Uh, in India and sto- uh, uh, his political histories, uh, in which agriculture is a central theme, I think of you know the canonical uh, work of Francine Frankel. Um, uh, but 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 agriculture is treated broadly as kind of an aggregate question of production of targets, um, and people, save for big policymakers like Food Minister C. C. Dene, are essentially um, outside of that script. And that was quite at odds with what I saw even in my preliminary attempt to pull some of these materials together, where food and agriculture is front page on newspapers it's um it's it's at the um it's in the opening paragraphs of many letters it's the subject of, of countless pamphlets uh and small print treatises which are not necessarily located in um traditional repositories in India in the um either the center or in provincial capitals or even even some smaller private archives. Um, there was a lot of kind of groundwork sussing out what was available in those traditional repositories. But then there was a lot of culling together of um, books that had been maybe printed or pamphlets that had been run off in pretty small numbers, but which made their way to repositories, um, in the United States, uh, in part thanks to PL 480 purchases in the UK to a lesser extent, uh, a little bit in Germany, uh, and the Netherlands. Um, so these were kind of complementary materials that began to show how, how central food and agriculture were, um, uh, as, as, as themes, not just to policymakers, but to citizens, uh, themselves. And so I tried to put those stories front and center in the text. Um, there is, I, I make use of the work of a lot of journalists, of um, activists, of, um, uh, of citizens who may have been primarily wrestling with another interest, but for whom food emerged as a central pillar of contention about um, other major themes um, uh, in, 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 the, in, in the history of the new nation.
0: I think a few pages into the introduction, you make the intriguing statement, this is a book about independent India's efforts to feed itself. If you had to encapsulate the research question that drives this book, very briefly, what would it be?
1: I think I, 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 so when I say India's efforts to feed itself, I wanted to explore the larger values that were in orbit and were kept in play as Indians wrestled with what on the surface might have been something of a technical question of how do we get the land to yield more? Um, it was clear to every Indian citizen and every Indian planner at Independence uh, that food was the central uh was was one of the the foremost problems that a new nation was facing um but I think the answer was very rarely treated in the nineteen fifties and the nineteen sixties and it would changed by the nineteen seventies uh it it was It was rarely treated as a technical question alone but rather a political question which stood in for Larger, uh, uh, larger and related debates over social and political and economic organization in post-colonial India. So when I say it was Indians' efforts to feed itself, that is, that is true. Uh, but the effort uh, for a new nation to reach what now we would call food security um, also encapsulated these other questions of um, how was labor and land to be organized? Um, what was the proper place for technical inputs, um, who had a claim to expertise or uh, uh, ideas about development. Um, those were encapsulated very neatly in the food problem, which in, in my reading of post-colonial uh, Indian history um, ties together uh, these these bigger themes.
0: So let's uh, backtrack a bit for the benefit of our listeners. What was the political and economic landscape that greeted India's planners and politicians in nineteen forty seven after the British left
1: yeah, so so it, that landscape really came into the landscape was a dire one, and it really came into relief for Indian citizens and Indian planners. Um, in the wake of the Bengal famine, not immediately afterwards, but in the um, certainly within a year of the famine's outbreak in 1943 and its peak in 1944, um, that was something that took what had been a very um, what had been something of an abstracted concern for uh, colonial nationalist economists uh, that the Bain-Ner-Gee had thought about, this certainly and many others at the turn of the 20th century. Um, but it brought it to kind of the center of planning, and the, the and the, the the situation in 1946, 1947, as independence uh, lurched into view, was 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 dire. Um I me mean, read here. There's I have a I have a pamphlet that I've I've drawn upon. Uh, somewhere in the book, it's um, it's written in August 1947 by a, a popular pamphlet writer he was in Bombay. Um, it's called "Hamari Roti Kisamasya, It's our our food problem. And it's uh, Jagdish Chandra Jain. He writes. He says. He says, these days, no matter where you go, there's constant talk of food. Uh, uh, the war ended two years ago. Congress now runs the country, but there's no end in sight to rationing. Around these parts, there's no choice but to keep your ration card safe. If you were to lose it by mistake, you'd have no option but to starve. He says that every Indian who saw her rationed sugar run out by the fifth day couldn't find bell to cook. Knew that food is not only a problem of the farmer's field, but a problem worldwide and one that the common man must consider seriously. This is a pamphlet writer writing for you kind know, of an educated middle class audience in India, and he kind of crystallized how central food was in the minds of um uh of Indian citizens. And Planner saw that um, all the same. Uh it was very clear that the refugee problem was uh, exacerbating the difficulties that were already there when India uh, was cleaved of 30% of its arable land in partition. Um, this was uh, the question of, within a year of independence, um, Indian bureaucrats were heading to Washington, they were heading to London, uh, they were heading to Africa, to Southeast Asia, to West Asia, uh, to petition for food, something that, uh, uh, it was a tremendous blow uh, to the aspirations of new nationalists. So the situation was um, was quite dire. Um, it would become perhaps its lowest nadir in around 1951 with a near famine in Bihar. But this was this was this was clearly one of the largest problems that planners and citizens themselves um, saw as they surveyed the landscape of of independent India.
0: So early on, you know, you. Also, say that, you know, this book is as much about the meaning of rights and citizenship and how Indians across the board often use the food question, right, to explore larger understandings of what it meant to be a citizen of an independent country, how they approach questions of welfare and well-being. And so perhaps you can tell us a little more about how citizens experienced this new political moment because now that the British were gone and, you know, much of, as we know, the freedom struggle was about uh, holding the colonizer responsible for India's dire, uh, you know, several consecutive famines, but now that the British were gone and yet the condition of hunger and food shortages was not really improving, how did people come to terms with their newly independent status and in this sort of continuing uh, condition of hardship?
1: So the first, the first thing I'd mention is that um there were you know uh uh scholars before me have done wonderful work on um both the material and the material semiotic um uh, uh institutions that came alongside independence um questions of passports questions of property the ways in which citizens perceive the state um it's my contention in Hungry nation that they did this most readily through um, questions of food through procurement, uh, distribution, uh, and of course the corporeal and very visceral experience of hunger for many Indian citizens. Um, it was very—you um, might—you might have to deal with the question of passports once, or you might deal with questions of property intermittently, um, uh, or for for some for uh, uh, for a certain amount of time after independence. But the experiences of say. Um, standing in a ration line or conversely uh, having uh, limits placed on uh, uh, gatherings where there was to be food. Um, that was something that hit readily, uh, weekly if not daily. Um, for producers, for farmers, um, the question of procurement was just as front and center. Uh, uh, the, the system differed from place to place, but uh, farmers and producers responded poorly to um, the Procurement system that came along with independence and which had sprouted up in the years, uh, uh, the wartime years, uh, before independence. Um, the, the bigger question was how these translated into conversations about rights and how they became a locus for exploring questions of what the new nation itself should look like and what the roles were going to be. Um, in, in earlier work on, uh, the Bengal famine, it's been suggested that the Bengal famine had a relatively minimal impact on an um, on Indian political life, owing to the fact that uh, much of the Congress was in was jailed at the time, and so there therefore couldn't have um, uh, they couldn't have made capital on the famine. Uh, I, I show early on in in, in Hungry Nation that that was not in fact the case, and that uh upon their release from wartime detention the congress leadership made food capital on the question of the bengal famine and on the longer history of uh colonial malnutrition and uh misgovernance um the uh, and and certainly journalists activists uh and different social groups uh made similar kinds of capital and brought these questions to the center in the years between 1944 1945 1946 and 7 By the time independence dawned, nationalist, the nationalist leadership of what would become independent India had taken on the food question as a central promise that would accompany independence. Uh, There was a a key litmus test of whether the national, uh, whether the freedom struggle had been worthwhile was the question of providing material uh, sustenance in the form of food, to a lesser extent housing and clothes, but, but food I think was elevated above um, those other two components. And Indian citizens were, themselves were very well aware of this. Uh, the nationalist leadership tried very quickly after independence to distance themselves from these earlier promises that they had made of sustenance. Uh, it was very clear to them, the agronomists who were working within the government, the planning commission to various agencies and ministries, that the ground was not going to yield any more food uh, by command. And what we saw very early on, uh, emanating out from Delhi, but also uh, from provincial capitals, was an effort to change the terms of uh rights and responsibilities so indian uh, the Indian national leadership suggested very early on beginning uh in the immediate post independence moment that Indian citizens themselves had a right to conserve or had a responsibility rather to conserve food to take the food problem on themselves to not eat the uh the expensive imported wheat and rice uh, uh, that was costing foreign exchange to skip meals uh to uh, give meals, uh, uh, to those who couldn't have them. And this, this, this set the stage for a very potent negotiation over what it meant to have, uh, a right or an entitlement in independent India. If, um, uh, and, and what the relationship was between those rights and the responsibilities that a citizen was herself supposed to, to, to execute and discharge. So these are some of the ways in which, um, that food question emerged on this um, on the central stage and then became the site for negotiating these 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 risky questions over what citizenship itself would mean
0: you know reading your chapter on the green revolution, i couldn't help but think of some of the debates that are currently going on in India following the farmers' rallies in March and then earlier this month, um, the Swaminathan Commission guidelines and the debates uh, around minimum support prices and insurance, and couldn't help but notice how even now the tendency remains uh, where we jettison questions of long-term social equities and land reform agendas over short-term tech fixes, right? So thought I'd ask you to maybe ruminate, you know, generally on that trend and more specifically the green revolution as it came to India.
1: One of the, um, the I think there's, there's, we we see so many resonances of uh, this 1960s um, transformation in uh, in the lived world of politics in India today. Um, the the key point that I try to leave us with in my, my writing on the Green Revolution is that the Green Revolution is not a moment, as um, other scholars have asserted, where where there were entirely new paradigms being brought into Indian planning and to Indian agriculture. Um it's often suggested that there was an epiphanic moment, usually around nineteen sixty six and sixty seven, when there was a co- a perfect confluence of uh plans, seeds, fertilizers, uh an obliging bureaucracy, a near famine in Bihar that uh forced the hand of um of the center in India and that that suddenly led to this moment of um uh, radical changes radical improvements in uh to productivity um it's 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 my contention that what we saw in the green revolution instead was really a reanimation of ideas that had been uh, lurking at the periphery of uh Indian planners uh various repertoire of options uh since at least uh the early late 1940s early 1950s um, there was always a debate among early planners, uh, and there was maybe in the Congress left, uh, versus, um, uh, who were stressing questions of equity in, uh, in, in agriculture versus others who suggested that maybe it would be best to allow for greater productivity among a smaller group of, uh, a smaller group of producers. Um, This was a debate which had played out throughout the 1950s. It played out in the internal politics of the Congress and, and producers themselves were very cognizant of these debates and the different options that were available to actors. And so what we saw in 1966, 67 instead was a moment when the, um, the, the, the political salience or the political urgency of equity really began to fade and lose out to a different, but pre-existing paradigm where uh, it was all right to have a package of inputs that would allow certain farmers to become, uh, uh, to produce more and become wealthy from that, uh, from, from that, from that arrangement. Um, so the, the long, the longer term, there have been many longer term consequences of that transformation. Um, most immediately, the complete remaking of agrarian politics in the 1980s, uh, is something that we see that comes directly out of those changes. I think, uh, sometimes that connection is missed between the transformative years of the 1980s and the two decades which preceded them. Um, we also see that the question of agriculture, broadly speaking, in national debates, um, outside of certain, uh, certain more academic circles or more activist circles, becomes something of a technocratic question. And that is something that I think is new. Uh, when there's discussions of agriculture uh, uh, of agrarian planning in nineteen fifties and early nineteen sixties India, these are fundamentally political conversations about who is to benefit and how benefits are to be shared or to be negotiated between producers and consumers or different types of producers um in the in in the changes that accompany the Green Revolution in the sixties, we see that these essentially become very technical questions. And I think that that's something that structures many of the difficulties um, of speaking about debating questions of agriculture in contemporary India.
0: And why do you think that happens, this uh, transmutation of what is essentially a struggle over rights and resources, um, the right to livelihood? How do they sort of it into questions that require expertise and interventions by technocrats?
1: So I, I think that to answer that question, we have to focus once again on that moment between, I'd say, around 1947 and, say, 1966. And to, to recover, which is what I try to do in Hungry Nations, some of the optimism, and I don't use that word romantically, but I think it's descriptive, but some of the optimism of that immediate post colonial moment, when it seemed as if, um, rather than it being a passive revolution, it seemed as if this would be a moment of fundamental uh of a fundamental transformation of the idioms of governance. That is to say, that an Indi- that Indian self-rule wouldn't merely mean uh as as political scientists have sometimes seen it the same Uh, the same, the same levers of power in Indian hands, but rather that there would be something, um, there would be something ethical, something, um, something ethical or moral, or at least attentive to the distinct needs of the Indian body politic in the period after independence. Um, this is a moment when, uh, and of course that vision is structured very heavily by the idioms of the Nehruvian state, um, uh, in the pedagogical and the dialogical movements of the 1950s, it's a moment when it's impossible to have these larger questions about, say, land reform, uh, and to think of them as, in, in scare quotes, merely issues of, 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 of planning. These are, as, uh, new work by, say, Nikhil Menon and others has, has shown, uh, these, these, these were, ex- the questions of planning were expected to be um, uh, uh, responsive, uh, in dialogical with the Indian body politic in certain ways and with certain limitations. And the 1950s where we see that dialogue occurring at its highest ebb. Um, uh, it's, un- it's unsurprising, I think, that this particular moment barely outlives and maybe debatably, arguably does not even outlive Nehru himself. Uh, it tends to fade out with the fir- as the first generation of the nationalist leadership um, leaves power and dies. Um, but it's a moment in that first decade and a half to two decades of Indian independence when we see questions of planning uh, moving front and center, not only among policymakers, but among citizens themselves. So that technocratic turn in 1966, 67 and afterwards, I think is somewhat unsurprising.
0: So fast forwarding, you know, to the present, what do you think then, you know, perpetuates this abiding contradiction that we see in India right now, right? The tons of grains in storage and a certain percentage of the citizen Re- remaining malnourished, right? Farmers continuing to commit suicide, this struggle to obtain minimum prices for their crops, right? Not having uh access to markets. How would you um you know extend some of your insights into the present moment that we are in?
1: This is, this is a question that historians rarely get to, um, to, uh, to deal with the present and then the future. But let me, let me weather, uh, uh, weather an attempt here. The, 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 you know, it's very evident in my read of the contemporary landscape of how truly technocratic conversations about, um, food have become. And that's true in questions about, say, um, uh, of, of, both consumers and producers, uh, in the ways that we speak about, say, um, India's, uh, malnourished and the dual burden of malnourishment and, uh, obesity, as well as questions, as you were alluding to right now, of farmers and producers, questions of minimum support prices, questions of markets, questions of access. Um, these have become, and book hints at, at, some of the reasons why this is the case, um, these, these, these become utterly Technocratic questions. We use language, uh, that, that even when it's lofty, really reflects a kind of econometric perspective. We talk about, um, entitlements. We talk about baskets of goods. We talk about, um, uh, though it's, though it's, it's less in vogue than it was when I started this project, the, the question of a right to food. Um, these are all vaguely, um, it's not to say they're hollow, but it's to say that the terms that we've adopted to speak about uh, the agrarian crisis in India, as well as the crisis of, of malnutrition, uh, and more recently malnutrition and obesity in India, these have become very kind of, um, technical debates, to use a, a loose word. Um, what's, what we've missed is an ability to speak holistically about some of these questions. And this is something that we see happening in, say, the 1980s with the rise of, um, uh a muscular agrarian politics, the question of how you know, we talk a lot about say minimum support prices, uh, and that's something that comes out of the debates that led to the formation of the Food Corporation of India in nineteen sixty six. Um but we talk less about how, say, in 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 a, in a broader sense, how a producer and a consumer are uh, uh, what that relationship is supposed to be, is supposed to look like and how a state might mediate that particular, um, that particular relationship. I think that's true around the world. I don't think that's a distinctly Indian question, but in the, in the Indian context, I think it owes much to, um, these transformations that began in the 1960s and, and, and continue till, um, till the present day. Uh, I, 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 I think that in doing some of the work of recovery that I've I've begun uh, in in this project, what I'd like to do is I'd like to insert uh, some and I would I'm certainly not the first to do it, but to bring in our ability to use qualitative assessments and to recover bigger political debates about questions of welfare and to not merely cede these questions to uh, uh, to development economists or to agrarian economists instead.
0: Right. And the fact that, you know, agrarian interests are very powerful electorally, and yet we um, see the social equity project that, you know, our planners and the Congress began um, the post independence period with has nevertheless sort of remained just out of uh, the line of sight. For policymaking. do you have any thoughts on that particular aspect? Why is it that we don't have any administration talk seriously about land reform anymore?
1: Well, the question. Is, so it's a it's a it's a very good good question, and I, I, I broadly couldn't agree uh, couldn't agree with you more. Um, I think it's difficult to. I think it's difficult to square or to reckon with rather kind of how all encompassing or how rather to say how different the world of, how different the world of Indian politics was in say the 1950s and the larger project that it tried to um, encapsulate. Um, What we see when we look at say the 1950s, um, is we see kind of a broad terrain of imagination. And a large number of, uh, imaginaries that are available to Indian actors, uh, as solutions for the, um, solutions for the food problem, all of which were broadly political and social in arrangement. And some of these are, uh, very obvious to us in hindsight. It's, it's very easy for us to recover how influential, say, um, the project of Chinese and Soviet collectivism was. To the Congress left, it's very easy for us to see the impact of, uh, American agricultural, uh, idioms and what they did, uh, 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 uh what they had, what they had on, uh, what impact they had on questions of productivity in India. We see that in, in Prakash Kumar's new work, uh, and, uh, David Engerman and others have, have studied the, the, the Soviet influence quite, quite extensively. But there were other options. That were always available to Indian actors, some of which, which, uh, some of which came from overseas and some of which were autochthonous and, and, and came up at home. So in my work in Hungry Nation, I uncovered some of those different visions. So there were questions to say, uh, entering into different, um, uh, import export arrangements with Southeast Asia or East Africa. Uh, there was a brief effort made to bring, um, uh, to bring Israeli experts in, to set up a kibbutz uh, in uh, Western India. There were these models that were coming from overseas, and then there were these projects of imagination, but real, we have to take them seriously as plans that came from Indian citizens themselves. Um, I deal with a number of these in the book, uh, schemes for, say, um, uh, uh, small scale dams that would help yield more and that stood in contrast to, uh, the large dam projects, uh, questions of how to sort of remake, uh, Indian agricultural production on a smaller scale, uh, and to, uh, combat different projects of Nehruvian modernism. And I bring these up in response to your, your initial question, just to say that the, um, there is an impoverishment of ideas over questions of agriculture in India, and there, that was not always the case. That's the product of how radical a restructuring occurred in the uh, in the late 1960s and afterwards.
0: So, Ben, we're uh, you know quickly running to the end of uh, time we have here, but before we go, will you tell our listeners briefly about? your current project, what you're working on right now?
1: Well, I'd love to. I'm, um, I'm drawing upon a long-standing interest in, obviously, Indian agriculture, and I'm connecting that with something that has been very much front and center of um, you know, public thinking uh, from my vantage here in Boston, which is to say the American opioid crisis. Um, and I'm working on a project that I'm, I'm calling right now a transnational history of the opioid crisis. But that's, um, uh, that's actually a way of talking more about Indian agriculture and putting it in conversation with the global production of, uh, poppies and opioid medicines in, uh, uh, in the 20th century. And so this is a story that we know, uh, thanks to historians like Amar Faruqi and others. Uh, we know the story of Indian opium quite well. And, uh, our, obviously our 19, our histories of 19th century imperial economy are suffused by the, the opium question, uh, and how, how Indian market, in, in Indian markets were to interact and Indian agricultural production, uh, was to interact with, uh, with global agricultural production. And so what I've looked at is this very strange and fairly hidden connection between, um, the Indian opium industry in the years after independence as, um, uh, exports were quickly, uh, shut down and only a small amount of domestic consumption for what they called quasi-medicinal purposes remained. What happened to that crop? And for a while after the shuttering of the, um, uh, the Asian opi- opium trade, um, Indian planners didn't really know what to do with, uh, with opium. They figured that out pretty quickly though after 1953 when India entered into the, uh, United Nations, uh, convention, which governed, uh, what countries could produce opium for the illicit pharmaceutical market. And by the 19, uh, 1970s, um, India had emerged along with Turkey as one of the two main global producers for the pharmaceutical trade. Uh, that happened in, the, in, 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 the late, uh, in the late, uh, 1970s and early 1980s, uh, India and Turkey became the, um, two providers from from which 80% of American opioids had to be imported. And there's a longer history of interplay between those two countries and then the third site of global production in Tasmania. And all of those countries have become less important uh, since, uh, uh, since the pharmaceutical industry has moved away from poppy and uh, from opium and from poppy straw into synthetics, uh, which are increasingly being produced both illicit markets in Europe and the United States and a little bit in the Middle East, and illicit markets from China and Mexico. So India is at the center, and Indian agriculture is at the center of a global story of agricultural change and uh, changes in the political economy of pain and medicine. Uh, And that's something that I'm working right now uh, to to spin together as uh, as a second project.
0: Well, that uh, sounds really interesting, especially how you're knitting together disparate locales through this uh, particular economy of opium production so we at new books wish you all the best for your future project and thank you so much uh, for joining us
1: today thank you so much for having me
0: all right bye bye and thank you to all our listeners for listening as always bye